Thank you for joining us on the Sighting Africa podcast series. This episode is presented by myself, Alyssa Sharp, alongside Ali Raja. Hello. And Sanath Jay. Hello. Today, we're going to discuss the relationship between knowledge production and African development as influenced by the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. Specifically, we'll be looking at how the IMF constructs the concept of creditworthiness in its lending process and what the implications are for both knowledge production and African development. As a part of our research, we were fortunate enough to interview a distinguished scholar in the field of finance and international development, Dr. Manfred Bienefeld, who dedicated his career to better understanding the ways in which the global financial system shapes and constrains development policy. Okay, my name is Manfred Bienefeld. I, I worked in the development field for the whole of my career, beginning with the period at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex. And since 86, I was professor here at Carleton University in Ottawa uh, in the School of Public Policy and Administration. And I led a development program which drew students from around the world for uh, most of that period. We would like to thank Dr. Bienefeld for sharing his knowledge with us, and we will be featuring his ideas throughout our analysis. This podcast will argue that due to minimal objective credit criteria, the IMF is opening space for subjectivity in its construction of creditworthiness, informed by ideological culture and geopolitical interests. Ultimately, this creates a self-reinforcing system of knowledge production and leads to a loss of policy autonomy for African countries. To build this argument, our podcast will be structured in five parts. First, we will briefly introduce the topic of knowledge production. Second, we will look at how the IMF constructs the concept of credit readiness and what factors inform its credit decisions. Third, we will analyze how the IMF's construction of credit readiness influences knowledge production. Fourth, we'll review the impact on development policy in Africa. Finally, we will draw out some conclusions and implications from our research. All right, let's get started. Knowledge production and knowledge systems have critical influences on development policy. Conceptions of ideas shape development thinking, which is then translated into policy. However, knowledge production is not just an input into development policy, it is also an important output. The structural transformation of an economy requires the transition from low knowledge intensive outputs to high knowledge intensive outputs. It is therefore important to trace the entire knowledge process from conception of ideas to dissemination and practical application. In this podcast, we will trace how the IMF constructs creditworthiness, how this concept has been disseminated, and what influences it has had on policy. In order to understand how the IMF constructs knowledge, we will apply a social constructivist lens. Constructivist theory posits that knowledge is constructed, developed from existing understandings and values, as well as individual experiences with culture and society. Built upon frameworks of values and institutional culture, large organizations such as the IMF construct their own knowledge, which in turn influences their practices. We will now discuss how the IMF constructs the concept of creditworthiness and what factors inform its credit decisions. To begin, we have to break down how the IMF makes its assessment of creditworthiness. Who does it decide to lend to and on what basis? During our research, we found it difficult to pin down objective assessment criteria for creditworthiness that the IMF consistently uses. 
In fact, we instead found that the IMF is the rare credit union that never rejects a loan applicant, provided that it can credibly demonstrate a financing need. The IMF's construction of creditworthiness therefore significantly differs to that of an ordinary commercial bank, which has criteria against which they decide to lend money. Instead, the IMF model controls the credit risk of loans through three key policy tools, loan size, conditionality, and enforcement. Starting with loan size, size is typically capped at 435% of a member state's total quota, although waivers can be made and the total maximum loan size was increased over the course of the pandemic. Coming on to conditionality, IMF loans are often a lifeline to developing countries with poor or failing policy outlook. The objective of IMF loan provision is therefore to address long-term balance of payment problems through loan conditionality, often in the form of attached policy prescriptions. Since the 1970s, policy prescription has become an increasingly core part of IMF lending. There is limited official guidance for IMF staff and management on the type of conditionality that can be applied. Setting of conditionality is largely discretionary with no limits on the number of conditions and varies on a case-by-case basis. According to Dr. Stephen Nelson of Northwestern University, Conditionality is not included in the IMF's Articles of Agreement. It was only after the IMF turned its attention to the developing world in the 1970s that loans began to include numerous conditions, and the practice has evolved without any precise rules to guide staff members and management on how best to apply the policy tool. An institution-wide review of conditionality in 1978 produced guidelines intended to make treatment of borrowers more consistent. But by the mid-1980s, those guidelines were discarded as the scope of conditions was expanded to target structural distortions in borrowers' economies, eliminating subsidies, freeing prices of goods, liberalizing trade, privatizing state-owned assets, etc. There is no limit on the number of conditions that can be attached to a loan, aside from what is perceived to be politically feasible. Conditionality can play a role in mobilizing private capital inflows and signaling that a borrower is serious about stabilizing and reforming their economic and industrial policy, signaling enhanced creditworthiness to the market. On the other hand, it could be argued that by placing prescriptive policy requirements on desperate last resort borrowers, multilateral institutions like the IMF undermine and deplete national sovereignty for policy setting. This is an especially pertinent argument when considering the subjectivity of loan conditionality something we will discuss further shortly. Finally, the third policy tool is enforcement of conditionality. The decision to issue waivers and suspension of programs due to non-compliance tends to be discretionary and based on IMF staff's judgment. As such, there is limited formal process or routinized guidance around use of conditionality waivers, leaving this open to subjectivity and preferential treatment. On the basis of these factors, it can be argued that the IMF's construction of creditworthiness opens up space for subjectivity and therefore potentially external influence or systemic biases. This leads us to the question of how subjectivity is formulated. Firstly, the ideological culture of the IMF plays a key role. The IMF was established as an institution in 1947 following the Bretton Woods Agreement with the key role of monitoring exchange rate revaluations in order to ensure countries' balance of payments debts could be effectively managed. Since then, however, its operations in the global financial system, as well as its ideological drivers, have changed dramatically, although its name remains the same. Until 1970, the international institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, were actually there 
in order to enforce a kind of largely Keynesian or, or at least significantly Keynesian global order. In the next five years, by the time you get to 1975, those same institutions, they have the same name, most people think they're the same institutions, but they have actually changed 180 degrees in their role in the world. Ideologically, the IMF seeks to promote liberalization and integration into global markets as a path to development. This ideology is enforced through the organization of the firm. A rigid hierarchical structure means staff members conform to dominant views within the organization and have limited abilities or incentives to go against the grain. This is further enforced by the IMF's recruitment practices, which target economics graduates from a handful of highly ranked American universities. From a constructivist lens, these organizational practices ensure consistency in the IMF's conception of creditworthiness. Related to this, subjectivity is further shaped by the institution's own policy positions, which are influenced by internal and external factors. Internally, for example, there has been shifting opinions on capital account liberalization as Keynesian economists were replaced by a new cohort of neoliberal economists in the 1970s. Externally, Nelson finds that the IMF's policy preferences resulted in an outward systemic bias with certain countries given preferential treatment, largely driven by the degree of similarity between beliefs held by IMF officials and key economic policymakers in the borrowing country. When fellow neoliberals control the top economic policy posts, IMF loans become less onerous, more generous, and less rigorously enforced. Following on from this, the IMF's own beliefs can be influenced by external actors seeking to shape the terms of access, conditionality, and enforcement in ways that serve their own material interests. The IMF's largest member states add the most to its lending capacity, and thus its commercial operations. They are therefore able to exert significant political and economic pressure on its activities. For example, the US is the only state with a sizable enough quota to unilaterally veto supermajority decisions, in a sense leading to the bilateralization of a multilateral organization. In practice, however, a loan has never been completely blocked, although larger states can influence borrowing terms. For example, according to Dreyer and Jensen, the number of IMF conditions depends on voting patterns in the UN General Assembly, with closer allies of the US receiving loans with fewer conditions. Similarly, Dr. Randall Stone finds evidence that the US mobilizes its extensive diplomatic resources to lobby for better terms in cases where countries of strategic interest require the IMF's help. On the other hand, Woods and Chwiroth both argue that the IMF's most powerful member states rarely directly intervene in the fund's lending, rather they influence the organizational frameworks. For example, the setup of the quota system, executive board and voting structures of the IMF make some level of influence by larger states inevitable. It is also recognized that there is an unspoken gentleman's agreement between the US and the EU, which always ensures a European managing director and American deputy ensuring each respective region's strategic interests are always considered. Ultimately, all of these factors contribute to a subjective construction of creditworthiness, which constitutes adoption of orthodox and hegemonic neoliberal policy, is open to influence from larger member states, and protects the interests of global, systemically important economies. While all financial institutions exercise a degree of subjectivity when making lending decisions, the IMF is unique in terms of its capital structure where loanable funds are derived from the quotas of voting member states. 
This makes it especially susceptible to political influence in its construction of creditworthiness. When asked his opinion on the implications of this subjectivity, Professor Bienefield remarked, The a priori evaluation of the risks is always to a significant degree subjective, but that's particularly true in the case of these institutions because the objectives of the loans are so diffuse, are so difficult to measure, the, the success of the loans is so difficult to, to evaluate. On the other hand, subjectivity allows the IMF to take a flexible approach to crises, allowing strictness and leniency depending on prevailing conditions. This was evidenced by their change in policy during the COVID pandemic, allowing the fund to dispense large amounts of funds very quickly in a way that commercial banks could not including around $25 billion to African countries. When we probed him further on whether such subjectivity could lead to flexibility for borrowers in need, potentially acting in their favor, Professor Bienefield had this to say. I guess I sound pretty strongly critical of the development banks, but I want to hasten to add that they are often, I would even say generally, much more reasonable than the private banks. Our next section will be discussing the impact that the subjectivity has on knowledge production. The central idea is that the IMF's model of creditworthiness is self-reinforcing. The second is that it creates a system of knowledge with increasing homogeneity of ideas. And the third is that it is representative of the larger epistemic battle that is pervasive in the development space. Fundamentally, the IMF's model of creditworthiness is self-reinforcing through its decision to give or to withhold credit. Developing countries that meet the standard of being quote-unquote creditworthy are given the credit and their success is measured in terms of their ability to achieve the IMF's policy prescriptions. For instance, according to the IMF's own study conducted by Mohsen Khan for 75 developing countries that received credit over the period of 1973 to 1988, almost all programs were considered successful in containing inflation and improving the overall balance of payment deficits in the long run. The success of these programs, reinforced by the IMF's own notion of assessing creditworthiness. At the same time, the IMF's decision to withhold credit equally incentivizes its model to work since countries that desire credit, especially in times of economic shock, will want to work towards becoming what the IMF considers creditworthy in order to receive credit. As a result, this model makes the knowledge system on creditworthiness sustainable and self-reinforcing. This mechanism is further sustained through what Mkandaiwire describes in the spread of economic doctrine as the investment by global institutions into training and capacity building in order to create a knowledge bank around these preconceived set of ideas. Though Mkandawire spoke about this in specific relation to the World Bank, Professor Bienefeld notes that this equally applies to the IMF and its desire to create knowledge banks that reinforce the successfulness of its policy prescriptions. He further adds that. The, the tragedy is that to a large extent, the IMF helps to define, quote, what is possible at the end of the day. What then emerges is the increasing convergence and subsequent homogeneity of a set of ideas within this system of knowledge. As Nkanda Wiri notes, African countries, many of which are forced to use the funding received from institutions like the IMF for other development objectives, 
do not invest in building domestic, academic, and political institutions that can create variance within this field of knowledge. In fact, he notes that conditionality often requires decreased public spending, which negatively impacts local knowledge production systems by defunding education infrastructure, especially for higher education. We're reminded of Makandawiri's comparison of how, unlike the experience of South Korea, which pushed back against the knowledge banks imposed by the IMF through its robust academic and policymaking communities, the majority of African countries have not challenged the knowledge system of creditworthiness imposed by the IMF. It is important to recognize that diversity matters in terms of the equality of knowledge. If a system of knowledge is built on unequal grounds, how accurate can it be? As Professor Vinafield notes, The power relationship is totally asymmetrical, and the enforcement of those loans is not governed by laws, it is governed by power. And, and when uh, loans are forgiven, in almost every case, that has a very significant political element. Ultimately, this consideration is therefore symptomatic of the larger epistemic battle of knowledge production at the global level. As Makandawiri notes, pockets of resistance by African economists against the IMF's knowledge banks were soon drowned out by highly regimented and well-funded networking among economists from IFIs and Western institutes closely related to them. In fact, Makandawiri notes that rather than producing sectoral-specific research, local economists would work as project managers carrying out cost-benefit analyses. Therefore, by imposing constraints on investment and demand for domestic knowledge production, the IMF's existing knowledge system is further reinforced. Our next section explores the implications that our considerations have for development policymaking. Essentially, we must question what development objectives we're seeking to achieve through the IMF's subjective construction of creditworthiness. Ultimately, we will think about how the construction of creditworthiness can powerfully influence the development pathways for developing countries. Furthermore, we must also question how this subjectivity may be potentially used by external actors to maintain a global hierarchy that entails Western hegemony. As Professor Bienefeld notes in Debt Collection Device or Development Policy, there is robust empirical evidence to suggest that IMF credit supports debt service capacity. However, he equally notes that there is no evidentiary basis to suggest that IMF credit supports other development objectives, such as poverty and inequality reduction, as well as structural economic transformation. It is therefore interesting to think about how the idea that IMF credit supports development as a whole has become hegemonic in development policy making. We must as a result question what development objectives we are seeking to achieve. Certainly the subjectivity of IMF creditworthiness allows it to have the flexibility to adapt to the development requirements of different countries. It is for that reason that the IMF has never refused the request from a member state for credit. However, at the same time, if the IMF's decision to consider a country creditworthy is based on the country's ability to improve its debt service capacity as opposed to improving other development objectives, it is fundamentally influencing the way in which African countries develop. This can be explained as what Professor Makandawiri describes as a choiceless democracy that operates as follows. 
Countries that do not have the prescribed characteristics of being debt tolerant, in essence, have lower access to credit or lower autonomy in the ways in which they can use the credit they receive. In turn, this narrows the range of policy choices that the country is able to make. Developmental stagnation as a result of this also eventually narrows the choice of political candidates, since candidates who reinforce the existing knowledge system are elected and continue to reinforce the same system when in power. This also relates to our previous consideration of the cyclical relationship with knowledge production. A notable case study that highlights this phenomenon is described in Professor Bienefeld's 1995 paper on the topic of Tanzania's Economic Recovery Program, or ERP. This demonstrates the practical impact of the IMF's influence on its policy-making autonomy. President Nyerere's government was only able to benefit from the ERP by expressly demonstrating their commitment to orthodox neoliberal economic policy in their 1984 budget, two years prior to reaching an agreement with the World Bank and IMF. Ultimately, the loss of policy-making autonomy prescribes the way in which developing countries fit into the global hierarchical structure, which, as Professor Bienefeld argues, seeks to maintain Western and namely US hegemony. Noting that, over time, uh, I came to believe that on balance, those financial institutions were driven by uh, criteria which were deeply ideological and uh, which entailed a premise, an underlying premise, that the the world was to be constructed in a way which ultimately was hierarchical. Um, it, it allowed, it encouraged countries to become integrated with the global economy, but in a manner that would effectively ensure their subordination into an international hierarchy that was driven by technology and power. We have traced the process of knowledge production from the IMF's conception of creditworthiness to its dissemination and development policy implications. As one of the rare institutions that never rejects a loan applicant, the IMF's definition of creditworthiness becomes implicit in its credit terms, which is influenced by a high degree of subjectivity. While subjectivity is a part of lending decisions in all credit institutions, without objective credit screening, the IMF credit process opens space for a high degree of subjectivity. This is informed by the ideological culture and values of the institution, as indeed posited by constructivist theories of knowledge production. It is also strongly influenced by powerful member states, perhaps the most acute example of which is the US. Conditionality is one of the primary means by which the IMF formalizes its position on creditworthiness, with credit terms varying from loan to loan. This represents a direct translation of knowledge production into policy and is also the primary dissemination tool of the IMF's conception of creditworthiness. As simultaneously a knowledge dissemination tool and policy prescription, conditionality makes the IMF's constructed knowledge become a self-reinforcing system. Those countries which adhere to the IMF's conception of creditworthiness receive more credit, while those that don't receive less. Receiving credit makes the knowledge system sustainable in the long run. Unfortunately, the IMF's construction of creditworthiness has undue influence on the development trajectories of African countries. The IMF's credit terms have historically maximized debt service capacity over other developmental outcomes and have resulted in a loss of policy autonomy for developing governments. Given the importance of the organization to the international financial system, these conclusions are of particular importance. IMF's construction of creditworthiness illustrates that knowledge production and knowledge systems are not passive, 
They have direct implications that change the world. Understanding these implications is an important first step in using knowledge systems to support long-term African development. That concludes today's discussion. We would like to thank Professor Manfred Bienefeld, Professor Robert Wade, and Dr. Laura Mann for their invaluable contributions to our analysis. A full bibliography is available in our podcast summary. Thank you.